Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic in the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David, and this week we're continuing our series on the Greek Olympian gods, and we're specifically going to be talking about Artemis, or as she's called in her Roman equivalent, uh, Diana. And she's interesting, particularly she stands out from among some of her counterparts for the prominence that she has risen to in modern forms of worship, if that is Dianic Wicca or even just Hellenic Reconstructionism, she has become a really important part of a lot of esoteric traditions in the modern day and a level that's not really seen in some of the other Greek deities. So for those of you that don't know, Artemis is the Greek goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, the moon, and the protector of animals and young women. And she's the daughter of Zeus and Leto, making her the twin sister of Apollo, She's the patron and protector of young girls and is believed to bring diseases upon women and have the ability to heal them from them. She's worship is one of the primary goddesses of childbirth and midwifery, along with Aletheia, much like Athena and Hestia, and she prefers to remain a maiden and took a vow to never marry. Artemis is one of the most widely venerated of the ancient Greek goddesses, and her temple Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Her symbols associated with her include a bow and arrow, a quiver, hunting knives, deer, and cypress trees. And her Roman counterpart, Diana, especially, was worshipped in Rome and in many parts of the Mediterranean world as Rome's influence expanded. So let's talk about her name, what that actually means, because the name Artemis doesn't really have an obvious uh, etymology the way that some of the other names do. So there's a little bit of mystery as to where she actually came from. A lot of scholars think that her origin predates the Greek pantheon as a whole, which would make her one of the oldest deities. But her name possibly relates to the Greek word arctos, means bear, because there is a bear cult associated with her in various parts of Rome, which has become the leading theory. So according to Hesiod's Theogony, Leto bore Apollo and Artemis, delighting in arrows, both of lovely shape, like none of the heavenly gods, as she joined in the love to the Aegis-bearing ruler. So various conflicting accounts are given in the classical mythology regarding the birth of Artemis and her brother Apollo. However, in terms of parentage, all the stories agree that they were both the children of Zeus and Leto. In some sources, Artemis is said to be born at the same time as her brother, and sometimes earlier, and sometimes later, with one popular account saying that she actually helped her mother deliver him. According to Callimachus, Hera, being angry at Zeus for impregnating Leto because Zeus was wild and Zeus had a lot of side chicks, um, she was angry at Leto for being pregnant with Zeus's children, so she prevented her from giving birth on the mainland or on an island. But the island of Delos disobeyed Hera, and they allowed her to give birth there. And according to the Homeric hymn to Artemis, the island where she and her brother were born uh, kind of floated up out of the ocean as kind of like an fu to Hera. It was kind of like, we're not breaking the rule because we're floating. We're not in the water. We're not on the ground. And in Cretan mythology, um, there were different island names given, but essentially the story is the same. So in some interesting versions of the story, the myths differ as to whether Artemis or Apollo was born first. But the most popular account given recently, especially that's been kind of circulating in magical circles is that she is heavily associated with childbirth because she actually assisted her mother 
and delivering Apollo, but that's more of a recent addition. And some of the more classical mythologies don't really give that version of the story. And the childhood of Artemis isn't really related in any myth that survives today, but the Iliad basically just says that she was beaten by Hera basically as a child and had to hide from her. But Artemis believed she'd been chosen by the fates to be a midwife and particularly because by some account she assisted her mother in childbirth and all of her companions that traveled with her also had to take a vow of chastity and remain virgins. Her symbols include the golden bow and arrow, hunting dog, the stag, and the moon. So, um, the worship of Artemis is interesting. It differed quite a bit from other deities where maybe there was just an altar put up or maybe you would bring something to a temple for them on occasion um, because she was worshiped less so by people who lived in cities and she was more so a goddess of rural people that lived in towns or in farms, forests and hills, things like that. Um, and being a goddess of, the, uh, goddess of the wilderness herself, that kind of became very heavily associated with her if you lived near an area like that. Her best known cults were on the island of Delos, which is said to be the place she was born, as well as in Sparta. And she was often depicted in paintings and statues in a forest setting, carrying bows and arrows and accompanied by deer. And the ancient Spartans used to sacrifice deer to her before starting a new military campaign. There was a popular Athenian festival in honor of Artemis called Artemis Orthia, which was observed in Sparta as one of the most popular holidays of the entire year because adolescent girls were sent to the sanctuary of Artemis to serve the goddess for a whole year away from their families. And during this time, they were known for their combat skills, their mannerisms, they were very formal, and they were taught things like etiquette and things like that. Being worshiped as one of the goddesses of childbirth, dedications of clothing to her sanctuaries after a successful birth of a child were also very common. And she could be said to be a deity that was also feared by pregnant women because miscarriages and death and childbirth were also said to be blamed on her as well. Because childbirth and pregnancy were very common and important events, there were also several other deities associated with it, but many were localized to specific areas. Um, but because she was as capable of bringing health and birth as well as she was death and miscarriage, she was respected and very much feared by pregnant women at the same time. So let's talk about some of her cultic titles and her epithets because she was called Agenia, where she was worshiped in Sparta, and that means huntress or wielder of a javelin. She was also called the advisor as well as the goddess of hunters. She was considered to be a virginal goddess, and it was one of her most important aspects, especially in the mythic stories, is that she took a vow of chastity. And this may seem to be in conflict with her being a goddess of childbirth, but it's likely that the idea of her as a virgin goddess is related to her role as a hunter, because hunters traditionally abstained from sex prior to a hunt as a form of ritual purity. And, uh, and they also believed that like the if the smell of sex was on you during a hunt, that you would not be successful. So it's also believed it was a form of independence because a woman that was not married had a lot more 
authority and autonomy to kind of do as she pleased in this time instead of a married woman who had to submit to her husband. And this has become a really popular theme in the modern day as well with her associations to uh, feminist reclaiming traditions and of course with Diana Wicca as well in which she's the central figure. And despite her virginity, both modern and ancient scholars have linked Artemis to a mother goddess kind of archetype. She was traditionally linked to fertility and was petitioned to assist women in childbirth. And according to Herodotus, the Greek playwright, Artemis and Persephone and Demeter were also kind of signified as being a tripartite triple goddess at this time as well. The worshippers of Artemis and Arcadia also traditionally associated with her Demeter and Persephone. As in Asia Minor, she was conflated with a local mother goddess figure like Cybele. However, this mother kind of archetype was not super compatible with the Greek pantheon because the Greeks didn't really have these figures where they were kind of melded into the same deities. This happened later on um, in Hellenism, but they were known for having more of a hard polytheistic view as each being being very distinct in themselves. So again, her symbols are the bow and arrow, as well as chariots, spears, deer, bear, hawks, and hunting dogs. Hunting dogs being particularly important because of the story where she is um, either accidentally seen bathing by a man, or by some accounts, he attempts to assault her, and then she turns him into a deer, and his hunting dogs eat him. It's one of the most famous stories of her. So she's become a particularly interesting figure in the form of like feminist reclaiming traditions of crafts and particularly in Dianic Wicca. And there's a great deal of controversy associated with her as well for that reason. Not so much with her in particular, but with the tradition that has become her namesake. So like Dianic Wicca or Dianic Craft is a all-female goddess-centered tradition. And even though some adherents signify as Wiccan, it's not really considered to be a traditional Wicca, but it is a form of craft. Um, there's more than one tradition that calls itself Dianic, but the best known is the women-only variety founded by Susanna Budapest in the United States in the 70s. It's notable for its worship of a single monotheistic goddess and a focus on egalitarian matriarchy. It is named after Diana, which is, of course, Artemis's Roman counterpart, but they actually take in worship from many different cultures and they see them all as being aspects of one singular monotheistic goddess. It's an eclectic combination of elements of British traditional Wicca as well as Italian folk magic as recorded by Charles Leland in his Gospel Aradia and the importance of womanhood, folk magic, and healing practices of various different cultures. And this tradition is unique because even though many forms of traditional crafts do kind of hold an emphasis to the role of women and motherhood and priestesses, this was the first well-known tradition that was by and for women only, particularly in the strain of craft that was advocated by Gerald Gardner. Um, it was noted for its kind of feminist outstanding points because Dianic Wiccans of the original lineage, they worship the goddess, they see as containing all goddess figures from all cultures, and she is seen as a source of all living things and containing everything in herself. They practice magic in the form of meditation and visualization in addition to spell work, and they focus on healing themselves and the wounds inflicted by patriarchy while affirming their own womanhood. 
Rituals include reenacting religious and spiritual lore from a female-centered standpoint, as well as celebrating the female body and mourning society's abuses of women. And their practice of magic is different, noted that it's rooted in the belief that life force comes from women and can be directed to enact change. So there's some pretty important differences from mainstream Wicca, because like other Wiccans, um, they form covens and attend festivals, they celebrate the Sabbaths, the Wheel of the Year, things like that. And they may even use similar altar tools and some similar language vocabulary as other Wiccans, but they are composed entirely of women. Um, and the founder, Susanna Budapest, she was asked why men and why male figures were excluded from their rituals. And she said, it is the natural law. As women fare, so fares the world, their children and everyone. If you lift up women, you have lifted up humanity. Men need to learn to develop their own mysteries. Where is the order of Attis, of Pan, of Zagreus? Not only research it, but popularize it as I have done. Where are the Dionysian rites? She says, I think men are lazy in this aspect by not working this up for themselves. It is their own task and not ours. And while she has been praised for creating a safe space by and for women and creating a prominent spiritual tradition that is feminist, she's also attacked, uh, she has attached to herself some controversy for being considered a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Um, she's very much welcoming of lesbians and women in general, but she has a very hard view of biological women only and has been kind of notorious for excluding trans women uh, in her groups. So take that as you will. Um, definitely here at this podcast, we're in support of trans people and gender non-conforming people, but that are those are the views espoused by her and by her group. So Aradia, or the Gospel of Witches, claims that ancient Diana, which is also Aphrodite and Aradia, they linked them to the sacred mysteries, and they're the origin of the all-female coven, and many know them. Diana Quicka began on the Yule Solstice of 1971, when Susanna Budapest led a ceremony of Hollywood, California, identifying as a hereditary witch and claiming to have learned folk magic from her mother and grandmother. Budapest is frequently considered the mother of modern Dianic Wiccan tradition. And of course, the name comes from Diana. But there are separate strains of this that don't really hold the same views. So um, there's, of course, the Budapest line, which comes from the original founder. It is a female-only coven system ran by priestesses that are trained and initiated by Budapest herself. And then there are the independent Dianic witches who are inspired by her work, um, particularly her book, The Holy Book of Women's Mysteries or other female-centered spiritual movements, but they instead practice and study themselves and initiate as solitary practitioners. Then there is what is called McFarland's Dianic tradition. And this is founded by Morgan McFarland and Mark Roberts. And despite the shared name, has a different theology, and they do accept uh, trans people as well as men into their circles. McFarland largely based their tradition on the work of anthropologist Robert Graves and his book, The White Goddess. And some McFarland covens will initiate men, and they're welcome to join, but clergy and leadership is limited only to female priestesses. And like other traditions, um, they espouse feminism as an all-important concept, and they consider the decision whether or not to include men 
uh, solely the choice of the individual coven, although they do accept trans people across the board. So they're centered very much in feminist theology, the goddess movement, and have been linked to other concepts of like Shaktism within Hindu sects and gynocentrism as well. And I will include links to both McFarland's and Budapest traditions in the description of the episode if you're curious about researching more things. But that wraps us up for this week, and I will see you all next time.